We're thrilled to have Rena Maycock on the podcast this week. Rena has an extraordinary career across a range of businesses and has been founder or co-founder with two of them, as you will hear. Rena has natural sales and communication skills, and she tells us how she first started working with her co-founder to develop the very successful intro matchmaking after a chance encounter. She and her partner identified a market opportunity and they developed the company through the years. In fact, the last year has been the most successful they ever had. Rena explains why this business was successful. Spoiler alert here, it's her focus on selling skills. Next, Rena took some time out to have a child and after being a parent for a while, she became aware of the dangers of online for children, such as grooming and unsuitable content. She followed this up and found a kilter, a deep tech company that has developed intellectual property to protect children. The scarcity of seed funding in Ireland is a topic that Rena has views on after her experience with Kilter. The lack of funding for deep tech companies that require some level of investment to deliver their intellectual property is an obvious problem. This has skewed early stage investment to companies that are, are already trading. As Rena says, there's very little appetite for risk in Ireland. Hopefully, from her thoughts and other people who have contributed here, this will be addressed as a structural problem over the next few years. Rena also writes a column for The Currency a few times a month as an opinion columnist. Uh, this is definitely a, a podcast I know you're going to enjoy as Rena is a natural communicator and has a lot of interesting things to say. This podcast is sponsored by Netzer, the leader in digital sales channels for telecoms. Thank you for listening to our amazing innovators tell their stories. Okay, welcome to the podcast this week. I'm, I'm delighted to have Rena Maycock, who has an, an, a, an, a really interesting career across a wide range of businesses, but also has some very interesting thoughts on the current state of play with seed funding. So first of all, Rena, welcome to the podcast. Thank you for having me, Pat. Not at all. And I, I'm, a, I'm here to learn lessons from you, Rena, because I see on your cv that you were in radio for a while i'm a little bit intimidated so please bear with me but yeah tell us tell us a bit about your early career and uh, it's very interesting yeah i mean it, it seems very diverse when you look at my cv all right and uh, i'm aware of that i suppose I, I started my career when i was 20 selling advertising um for 98 fm and i found with media that there was very much an open door in terms of career progression. If you proved your merit, it didn't matter whether you were a man or a woman or 20 or 50, you could rise up the ranks quite quickly if you were competent. So, you know, I worked for a number of radio stations, you know, leaving each job to kind of jump up a step in the ladder. And by the time I was 30, I was chief executive of a group of radio stations, having worked in a few radio stations and in TV. And, you know, that, found me in a position where I was kind of doing monthly board meetings, uh, running a couple of radio stations, re responsible for quite a bit of budget and uh, and revenue generation. But that was at a time when, you know, the recession had hit. There was, you know, the the, the big bubble. Um, and it was around kind of, you know, 2010, 11, um, that I realized very quickly that Ad revenue is the first thing that gets cut from a budget when a business is suffering. Mm -hmm. And uh, my partner at the time, uh, Fergal Harrington, who's my co-founder in, in, in the business, um, he worked in residential property sales. So both of our sectors were suffering very badly uh, yeah. when the bubble burst. Mm -hmm. So, you know, 
we decided to take matters into our own hands and start up a company in our spare time, you know, nights and weekends. We knew we wanted to do something that leaned into our particular skills. I had skills running businesses. I also came from a sales background and Fergal is the best salesman I've ever met. So, you know, both being kind of salespeople and and, and, uh, having dealt with the public and business, we just, if we're honest, we were looking for an idea to strike us that was low capex um, and could lean into those skills. And, you know, one night we were in Gibney's uh, in Malahide, if you know it, it's a bit of a disco bar. And there was a guy, we were with a bunch of friends for a birthday. And there was a guy, you know, standing just beside the bar, probably in his early 40s, clutching a pint to his chest. And I just noticed him being on his own and wondered, was he meeting someone? And throughout the course of the night, I realized he's actually here trying to meet someone, trying to pick up a date. Um, he was there on his own. And I thought, my word, I could think of probably five women in my acquaintance that would have been <laughs> delighted to go out on a date with them. And I thought there has to be a better way than this. Well, so, so, so this was this was your market research. Let me first of all say I'm a local to Gibney, so I know it pretty well. Uh, but generally speaking, it's uh, it's more my my drinking companions are a little less exotic than the uh, what what you've just described, but, but so so this was just occurred to you that there's maybe an opening. I mean, is there a particular market segment? So so the company name is Rena. Uh, so the company we started was Intro Matchmaking, um, right. and you know the the research that we did was this was at the at the start of the dating app boom. Uh, we were a few years into into online dating websites. And they were imperfect and they were very public. And Irish people being Irish people, they don't like to stand in an effective online shop window, which is what you do when you put your profile picture up. And all the research says that you have to put a picture up or else you'll get nowhere. Mm -hmm. So, you know, 50 percent of people in Ireland were kind of saying, "Okay, I'll give online a shot. The other 50 percent of people were saying, hell no. Um, (laughs) So we wanted to appeal to that other 50 percent of people. And we realized when we started to set the business up that it was a recession and it was no better time than to mm-hmm. start in a recession. You know, labor was cheap. Stationery was cheap. Rent was cheap. Advertising was cheap. You know, you were talking about paying 10% of rate card costs at that time. And I had all those connections built up through my media career. And um, and so intro, you know, took off. And within a few months we had we were generating enough business to sustain me and then to sustain Fergal um so we went into the business full time and very quickly started to 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 you know take people on um ramp up the uh, our our staff and within 5 years we were moving to premises on Grafton Street we had started on Dawson Street, um, you know, the business exploded in 2013 when we had an appearance, you know, a minor appearance on the Late Late Show and everything crashed. Um, <laughs> all of our systems crashed. Nobody could get through. And it was a, a, just an absolutely enormous, enormous success. And, you know, since then, we've gone from strength to strength. We've weathered ups and downs in terms of the economy. And actually, now here we are in a situation where we've had the best year we've ever had in the last, no. uh, you well, know, twelve months. And how does it work, Rena? I mean, why, why, why are you? Sorry, Rena. Why are you guys successful? Is it, is there something that you bring to the the business that um, other people don't? Um. I suppose when we started the business, there were a couple of small mamas and papas players in the market um, and when I say mamas and papas players I mean operating from their home maybe one like maybe a husband and wife in the in the business or maybe just a woman in the business um, and it would with, with level 
you're not just selling your service, you're selling the pool of people that you can match up. Mm -hmm. So it's important. And, you know, when we entered the market, we, we came in at a reasonably low cost compared to a couple of other competitors that were in the market so that we could bring up the pool of, of daters. And at that point, we started to incrementally increase the price over time so that we could increase margins to make a bit more money. Um, and that strategy worked for us, but we we treated it very much like a business. We didn't treat it like a this is going to sound pretty harsh, like a counseling service. Right. We we never met people for chats. We only invited people in that were going to join on the day and pay their money. We were very strict about who we took on. We didn't take anybody's money that whose expectations we felt we couldn't meet. Sure. We generated policies for entry into the company based on statistics and, and success and uh, CSO figures. So, for instance, if um, a, a PhD level woman came to us and said, look, I'd really like to meet somebody that has the equivalent academic qualifications, academic qualifications as me. We would say, well, that's impossible because in Ireland for every one professional woman, there's just 0.6 of a professional man because women tend to stay longer in education than men do. Mm -hmm. And we learned these things very quickly when we opened the doors and we were seeing inequalities and inconsistencies in terms of what people were asking for and what was, you know, we realized we, we could achieve. So we've been quite brazen, I guess, about our success rates and possibly a little bit cold and a little bit business-like we've been accused of being like. But at least customers, when they come to intro and they deal with Fergal and the team, they know that our number one priority is their success, right. is us matching them with, with somebody, not us sitting down and saying, why are you single? We're not qualified to do that. Mm -hmm. We're not psychologists. We're not psychotherapists. Other people are good at that sort of thing. What we do is we provide a matchmaking service based on success rates. And we're very rigorous about that because one third of our business comes from referrals. People that have been in the service enjoyed it and tell their friends. It's a very cheap and cost effective way of yeah. generating new businesses to provide a good service. And then you get people going out and telling others. You'd be absolutely sure. astounded at the amount of people that come to us and say, I was at a wedding at the weekend and, you know, the bride pulled me aside and told me where they met, whereas they're telling everybody else they met down the pub. But then, you know, people <laughs> will success with the intro and they'll tell their friends very privately that, you know, oh, go over there. That's where we actually met, whereas they're kind of saying to everybody else, oh, we met down the grave diggers or in Gibneys, you know. So yeah, I suppose yeah. that's what sets us aside. We're very business-like. We're focused on strength. This podcast is sponsored by Netzer, the leader in digital sales channels for telecoms. Thank you for listening to our amazing innovators tell their stories. Yeah, I think salespeople generally, Pat, what they learn to do, or rather what we learn to do, is adapt our personality and style of communicating very quickly to match that of the person that we're speaking with. It's an adaptability that you just generate a habit of over time yeah. and that ingratiates yourself, you with whoever you're talking to or trying to sell to. And that sounds a little bit sneaky, but it is what it is. If well, we all admit I'd, it. I'd say, Irene, I'd say empathetic um, rather than ingratiate. What I mean, you know, it's a transaction you're working with this customer, you're trying, you're trying to build a relationship with them. So. Yes, and we have learned that there are ways to do that to expedite that relationship and to cultivate it much faster. Um, and so we, we, we learn to organically adapt our style. So I think that 
with the likes of intro, we're dealing with, you know, our youngest member is 20, our oldest is, is 90. We have farmers, receptionists, yeah. shop workers, politicians, actors, you know, people from all walks of life are members of intro. So if you provide a service like that, you have got to be able to communicate with absolutely everybody. And when people say to me, oh, my word, that sounds like an amazing job being a matchmaker. And we had this issue at the start, Pat, when we were recruiting people. You know, we'd get applicants for the job and say, oh, I can't imagine how great it is making people's dreams come true all day, every day. And we would say, this is not rainbows and unicorns. It is a sales job. It yeah, is a sales yeah. job. And we are, you know, we made the mistake in the beginning, possibly of allowing people this kind of notion of what it was going to be like. But we realized very quickly, unless you're upfront about the fact that this is ultimately a sale, you're selling from 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 the minute you you get into the office in the morning, you're selling profiles to other members of each other. You're selling the service to whoever calls you up. It's constant selling. And there's right. no getting away from that. Yeah, no, no, I think that's fair enough. And, I, you know, you're it's it's you know your clients obviously are happy because you're growing and, and you're sort of to the point with them they know what they, they're getting and uh obviously a good level of success but yes so your next business is a totally different area so do you want to, do you want to <laughs> tell us what this is are you trying to say to me pat that there isn't an automatic movement from uh media <laughs> to uh, matchmaking to child protection software yes I, I to be honest arena i've never seen that career progression in my whole life <laughs> yeah it's a, it's a bit of a strange one i get that asked this often because you know i'm not a technologist clearly um I suppose it came about a few years ago. I was pregnant and I kept getting served the image of Alan Kurdi, which is a little Syrian boy that washed up on the beach in oh, Turkey. Yeah. You might remember very, his image. Very sad, yeah. Very sad. And, you know, I was pretty fragile at the time and I kept crying every time I saw his image. So I looked around for a filter on Facebook and Twitter so I could continue using social media basically without being served his image. And I couldn't find a filter. And so I asked some friends and they said, no, I'm not aware of a filter. But if you find one, let me know, because I'm always getting served images and stories that I don't want to see. So the idea for Kilter ultimately came about because I myself wanted to protect myself from harmful imagery. And, mm-hmm. you know, I left that be and I have my my child and when I became a parent. My perspective changed entirely. It's almost like if you're in the market for a Renault Megane, all of a sudden, all you see on the road is a Renault Megane. And all of a sudden, when I became a parent, all I could see were headlines of children that had been systematically cyberbullied, groomed, coerced, sextorted from, and ultimately pushed into the irreversible. And there was one common thread, and that was the parents didn't know there was anything wrong until it was too late. And yeah, yeah. so I took a look back at that filter idea I'd had, and a friend of mine who is a technologist said, look, that seems to be a really natural fit for a parental control. You might find something in the parental control market. So I took a deep dive into the parental control market and I saw that what was available to parents was all apps, you know, parental control apps. There was like 250 on the app store and 220 on the Apple store. So, you know, they all shared features like, you know, geofencing and geotracking for your child. So you could tell where your child was. They would restrict access to certain apps or to to the phone at certain times to stop your child from becoming addicted to, to social media. Um, they would block pornography and gambling websites, you know, wholesale URL blocking. Sure. But none of them were dealing with, with cyberbullying and grooming. And when I had looked at the research, there had been a web-wide study done by the Irish government to assess what parents' main concerns were when they gave their child a smartphone. And there was four main equal concerns. 
So one was that they'd access pornography. The other, they'd spend too much time online. The other, they'd be groomed. And the other, they'd be cyberbullied. So I came at this very much as, you know, A, a parent and B, a salesperson. I was thinking 50% of parents' needs are not being met here because there was no solution that could detect and block cyberbullying or grooming on these app stores. And I thought, why is nobody doing this? It seems like a blindingly obvious solution. And my view on the on the whole thing with my salesperson's hat on is if you build it, they'll come. So I started. Yeah, I, to I, I think you're right. I, I, I'm just um, sort of somewhat amazed that you're uh, you're uh, the way you're able to spot opportunities so quickly in a totally new area. I know how the experience of be, becoming a, a mother and so on, but that you quickly zoomed in on this. You know, it's it's a it's a great skill to have. Oh, you're very kind. Thank you very much. Uh, it's a lovely compliment. But, you know, I suppose it, it's just the way my career went, you know, that you do look for opportunities. You know, certainly when we were I was in my early days, days selling advertising campaigns, I was selling B2B. So I was privy to the innermost thoughts of quite a number of entrepreneurs. They would tell me what their pain point was and I would try and solve it through advertising. Yeah. So I suppose that's a training thing. I, maybe it's a it's an inherent skill. I don't know, but I, I certainly know I developed that through my B two B sales career early on. Um, so you know, I thought to myself, if I come up with a robust solution to this, people will buy it. Parents will certainly buy it, and that was how Kilter was born. Um, I started to teach myself about the technology, and I realized the reason was uh, nobody was doing it was because it's hard. Yeah, it is. <laughs> so. Yeah. You know, it needs to be an embedded solution in order in order to get access to to messaging apps, which is where in the main cyberbullying and grooming is done. You know, so all of the solutions that were out there for parents were app based. And I started, you know, I realized that apps operate in a peer to peer system, so they can't access data within other apps. So if you download a NetNanny or a Custodio or any of the main child protection apps, it cannot access Messenger. It cannot access WhatsApp or SMS. It just lacks the technical te- capability. So I started to research the earliest point in the technological stack that you can access all incoming and all outgoing data, because ultimately that's where we needed to be. And that was at the kernel level. So it was going to have to be an operating system modification uh, to the, at the kernel level of, of, of the technological stack. So I took some advice at the time and the advice was patent first, build later. There's no point in, mm-hmm. you know, spending a million building a, an app and then or building a, a, a product. And then, you know, you you then realize you've encroached on somebody else's IP or else somebody has already done it. And you wave, you've wasted your money. You're actually not as uh, as unique as you thought you were. So that's what we did. Um, and that's what we've been doing for the last couple of years, building up the business to a point where we we are ready for investment. Okay. Um, okay yeah. and, no, uh, and I, I fully understand what you're talking about because there's there's an inner engineer here, uh, Rena, you know, who, lo- who looks at all this stuff. Even though I'm, I'm sort of trying to be a, a good salesperson like yourself these days, so, uh, <laughs> <laughs> but I'm I'm tainted for life. <laughs> yeah. So so yeah, this le- leads on to another point. So the, the reason I, I was interested in talking to you was you wrote an article about the difficulty to raise seed money in Ireland, I think, mm. specifically. Would that be a fair summary of, of what, what your thoughts were? Yeah, I mean, look, some people in, in the, the venture community will probably disagree with this. And it's very much this is coming from my own point of view, the experiences that I've had, the experiences that other 
early stage founders have had in Ireland. And it's well documented as well. You know, Scale Ireland have done quite a bit on this. You know, Brian Caulfield wrote about it in the Irish Times, I think. Um, there is very little appetite for risk in Ireland. VCs, I, I fully agree, Rena. I, I yeah. Fully agree. yeah, institutional investors in general are risk averse. Um, you know, they focus very, very heavily on the risk. Perhaps that's as a result of being burnt in the past. I don't know, um, but certainly, in my view, institutional investors here are very, very risk averse. They will invest at seed stage if you are revenue generating. But if you are a deep tech company, you cannot be revenue generating without having raised a seed round first because your R&D is just too expensive to get through. Absolutely. So in my experience, VCs in Ireland, they like to fund commercialization. They don't like to fund development. And that's fine. That's a, you know, it's a more comfortable place to be, you know, if they want to wait and take less of a share of the company, but have a surer thing, that's fine. I understand that at seed stage, you know, you do stand a greater chance of your investment failing. But at the same time, at Series A level, in my experience, you know, having done the, the, you know, the circuits and been on all the webinars, a lot of the time you'll see VCs complaining about deal flow at, the, at Series A and beyond. And that's because nobody is funding seed. So if there's nobody funding seed and all these great innovations are failing and they have to close the doors because, you know, ultimately you can't keep surviving on fumes you do need funding at some stage um and therefore if these companies are failing then there won't be any opportunities at series a because nobody will make it yeah i know i think you've nailed it very well there arena there's um there's a lot of rah-rah around the startup community and but a lot of it really when people comes to people putting their hands in their pocket there's a, there's a sudden rush for the doors uh, now i know you have we've uh, um h-band groups etc cetera, etc cetera. And they're good, but essentially, Enterprise Ireland has abandoned I, I, this. This is a dangerous thing to say because I know a lot of people in Enterprise Ireland. But the, the appetite they used to have for um, bringing seed round to early stage funds, they've they've given it to the H-band groups, and I've done it with competitive start, which is small amount of money. Um, the it's we're really missing that sort of um, decent half million investment that you could engineer out of working with Enterprise Ireland, et cetera, et cetera. Now, I know they work with the H-bands, don't get me wrong, but it's just, it's not the same as it was even 10 years ago. And believe me, I've, I've been down this road. Yeah, and I suppose, yeah, I mean, look, Enterprise Ireland, I hope, have are going to reflect in their new strategy, which I believe is coming up, a plan for addressing that canyon-sized funding gap at seed stage. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. I have had, and a number of my counterparts in startup that I know of have had these conversations. And up until a year and a half ago, there was an absolute reluctance to admit that there was any problem at seed stage at all. You know, when I raised the issue, I was told that the majority, I think 80% of HPSU clients had raised their, their seed round from family and friends. And that's fine if you have a marketplace startup and your development costs are only going to be 350000 mm -hmm. You know, you can scrimp and save that together. And in my case, we've got a deep tech company and our total raise is $2.7 Yeah. So yeah. It, 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 there needs to be a breaking down of the different types of sectors and what's required for each sector. 
I think now because of the not the sheer volume of articles that have been written about it and not just by me like like I said like Scale Ireland quite a bit of lobbying Enterprise Ireland seem to be now listening um, and recognizing that actually there is a problem here Um, the problem in my view is speed you know so for instance the Minister for Finance announced the Disruptive High Innovation Enterprise Fund of 30 million in October last year as an emergency measure to save early stage startups and it still hasn't been administered Mm -hmm. you know and we're nearly a year on and that emergency fund is still in in the administrative process you know you also have another situation you know just anecdotally enterprise ireland you know they're ireland's if not europe's biggest investor institutional investor yeah yeah and like you say quite a lot of money is divvied out to the likes of the h bands the dbics and 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 other vcs enterprise ireland will, will go in as an lp and that's taxpayers' money. And, you know, I had an experience, for instance, you know, in December 2019, I believe, 30 million was given to um, DBIC as a seed fund. And when I applied for it, I was told that we weren't suitable because we weren't ge- revenue generating. But one of the mandates that they were to invest in was ICT, which is us, software, us, SaaS, us. Uh, and then also one of them was MedTech. And my question was, how could there possibly be a med tech solution? Forget about us, but a med tech solution that's revenue generating. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I've never I've never heard of a med tech product that could possibly get to market without raising a seed fund. Yeah, just so for the, the approvals alone take years. I mean, correct. It's, it's a so, particular market. Yeah? So, Pat, my view on the, the entire thing is definitions are a bit too fluid. Start the def, def, definition of a startup is too fluid. The definition of a seed stage company is too fluid. It seems to be that funds can decide what seed means based on what their own wants and needs are. Yeah. And the frustrating for me thing for me with that 30 million fund that was supposed to be seed stage was going to revenue generating companies and revenue generating companies have all of the funding options available to them. Yeah, they, yeah, I know. They can, they I've can been leverage down this road, Rena, so I know exactly what you're talking about. Yeah, they um, can leverage their sales to get debt. They can, you know, mm-hmm. uh, VCs are jumping over each other, competing for for revenue generating companies to invest in. They literally can take their pick, but it's seed stage companies that are pre revenue. So, I mean, a part of what I've been writing about in the currency, for instance, is you know there should be a definition on seed stage. Mm-hmm. It should a certainly be pre-revenue because you know how can you possibly be seed stage if you're if you're generating revenue um and then the definition of a startup so and that's i suppose we're, we're wandering a little bit that's in the context of of eis tax reform yeah, yeah. Um, a startup can be anything up to a seven years uh in in existence um post incorporation and at seven years most startups if you want to call them startups are again are revenue generating so the money is not going where the money is needed the money is going where there's lots of competition to invest yeah, yeah. um and but yeah, I, I, the, I i see green shoots though i mean certainly yeah. i'm dealing with enterprise ireland and there is a strategy there there is much more uh, less of a reluctance to admit that there's a problem at seed stage and I think there there is likely to be a leveraging of their position as Ireland's biggest 
yeah. LP to, to make change there. Yeah, no, like in fairness, Enterprise Ireland is a remarkable organisation and I've worked with many people there, but I think they're big enough to understand the, the criticism, which I'd, react, which I'd um, you know, say is also my experience. But look, Rena, that's that's really amazing. You do work? Do you do an old column for the currency, or what's your situation there? Yeah, I write for the call it currency a couple of times a month, um, ever since they launched, and I really enjoy it. It's a it's a it's a great opportunity to vent my <laughs> my frustrations. <laughs> and you get paid to do that. Oh, and I get to, and I and I get paid to do it, which is fantastic. Um, but look, the, the guys there are doing amazing things. It's and an look- amazing publication. Now, I, I, for the, the focus and the depth, of qual- the quality of the uh, articles are just incredible. Oh, absolutely. I mean, look, look, some of the stuff that the guys churn out, like Sean Keyes and Stephen Kinsella and, and Tom and Ian, the quality is just absolutely it's phenomenal. Amazing. And there's nothing like it in Ireland. No, and no, I, know, it- I, I know I would say that, but like the guys, when I met them, were in startup mode. They hadn't launched yeah. I came on board literally just before they had uh, they had launched. So they built this phenomenally successful business in, you know, under two years. No, it's, um, it's I don't have any connection with them. And I, I think it's an amazing product. It's just really hit the hit and it hit a nail somewhere, you know, just just the right mix of market and, and depth and everything. Yeah. And they do you know what? All of their pieces are backed up by, you know, facts. Um, I try and reflect. I know I'm always supposed to do an opinion college, but I, but I try and reflect facts as much as I possibly can, as you'll have seen in my uh, in my DTIF column uh, there there during the week. But uh, yeah, they're they're um, they're very robust. They're fantastic. Okay, that's great. And Rena, look, it's been great having you on the podcast. And uh, the the style of this podcast is the guest gets to nominate a play out song. So I don't know if you've something in mind, particularly with your radio background. This this might be interesting. I'm gonna pick. I'm gonna pick Pantera Walk. <laughs> okay, well, you're gonna pick Pantera Walk. Now, why are you picking that? Because you, it see, my, you can see from my face, I'm not really <laughs> impressed. This is this is not cool, you know. But anyway, go ahead, go ahead. You know what? It brings me back to my roots. I'm a I'm I'm a closet heavy metaler. Um, so I would have been moshing, uh, my heart away when I was when I was in my teens. <laughs> And it's one of those really um, aggressive, powerful songs that you can roar at when you're in the car on your own and you've had a bad day. Yeah, um, I, won't, I won't pretend I don't do that. Go ahead. Yeah, yeah. It, it, it's therapeutic, <laughs> Pat. Just put it that way. <laughs> All right, listen, that's brilliant. Uh, thanks very much, Rena. I really appreciate your, your insight and um, your great ability to communicate. Thanks very much. Thanks, Pat. Appreciate it. Thanks, Pat. For me.